When I used to play trumpet in recitals, we were always taught, you know, you never line your bell up and, you know, split everybody's hair when you're playing a recital at them. You, you know, go off center. And somehow, every time on Wednesday night, it's just Jason Booth. And, and now, you know, so I'm going to try to aim for the aggregate center of this congregation, if I can. So. All right. Daryl Royal, if you, if you recognize that name, he was the coach of the University of Texas from about the mid-50s to the mid-70s. And uh, over his 20 years coaching football at the University of Texas, he, he pretty well lit college football on fire. He was a kind of a curmudgeon of a coach. You know, he thought that if you ever pass the ball, there's three possible outcomes and two of them are bad, so you better run the ball. And so he came up with this offense called the wishbone offense, which you ran a lot. And, you know, in the wishbone, you had like three or four running backs on every play. No one knew where you're going, and it kind of looked like a bunch of cockroaches just running around. But he lit the world on fire with it. Well, he won a national championship in 1963, but come 1965, he loses to Arkansas, and the very next week he lost to Rice. And if you know football, University of Texas should never lose to Rice. Rice is not a football team. Rice is a food. You don't lose to them. So in a press conference, someone asked the coach, you know, hey, what kind of moves are you making? What changes are you going to do? You lost to a side dish. Are you going to change something? And Daryl Royal famously said, there's an old saying, you dance with the girl that brought you. You dance with who brung you. And so what Coach Royal is saying is that I ran these plays and they won me a national championship. I came up with this offense and I've won a lot of games. And I recruited these players and they played hard for me. So I'm going to still play them and I'm going to still run these plays. And that's my offense and I ain't changing anything. This thing brought me a national championship. It'll bring me more. I'm going to stick with it. Tonight, I want you to figure out how you can dance with who brought you. And we're in Malachi chapter 2, and we're going to see that Judah is not dancing with who brought them. If I can take you back to about 475 B.C. and this resurgent kingdom of Judah, God has brought them out of captivity in Babylon. And God has now brought them home. And so God is now giving them the music. And He's showing them the steps. And He's repaired their walls. And He's built the temple back up. But Judah doesn't want to dance. Judah wants to try out somebody else that they see at the dance. So Malachi begins chapter 2 with God's warning to repent of this destructive behavior. And in these strong words, I hope you'll see it's his call to return and to repair what matters most. Not the defenses, not the walls. Repair the covenant that he made with his people. So if you hear anything I have to say tonight, anything, hear this. No matter how far you go, no matter how low you go, no matter how great your sin is, no matter how terrible you are, no matter how unworthy you feel before God, He is still calling you 
to Him and you have the opportunity to repair that covenant with Him, it is still freely offered to you. It's available tonight. No matter how far you get, He's calling you back and He wants the dance. And I'm telling you, you have the decision to make. I want you to dance with Him. I say that in a Baptist church. All right. He's going to call back two people. First is the priesthood. If you go to verse 4, let's start in verse 4 and read with me. I'm going down to verse 9, so track with me. He's calling back the priesthood. Here's what Malachi is saying. God's words through Malachi. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him, one of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have departed from the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore, I also have made you contemptible and base before all people, because you have not kept my ways, but have shown partiality in the law. Look at verse 5. It says that Levi feared the Lord. At the end of verse 5, it says that Levi was reverent before his name. Now, the Hebrew verb in this sentence, it obviously means awe. A-W-E, awe. Wow. Reverence. It means that because in the context, you have God, you have Levi. And Levi's relationship to God is one of awe. I want you to figure this out. If I took that, that word... That in Hebrew, in this context, means awe. If you take it out of context. I know I'm breaking a biblical rule, but follow with me a little bit. Take it out of context. It has no direct object. God is not related to it now. It has no subject. We're not talking about Levi. We're just talking about this word in its purest form. Here's what that word means by itself. Broken. To be torn. Shattered. To be filled with terror. To be broken to pieces, to be dismayed, to be terrified, to dishearten. So verse 5 is going downhill in a hurry because it starts like this. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace. And I gave them to him that he might fear me, that he might be torn up in little bitty bits God gave Levi life and peace so that he might fear God. Now we know in Psalm 51:17 it says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Psalm 34:18, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and he saves those with a contrite spirit. So is God in the business of breaking people or healing people? 
Fantastic answer. You can see in these paragraphs, he can and does and will break hearts and heal hearts according to his purposes. Some of you know how God has healed your heart. Some of you know how you were proud and God humbled you. He tore you up. He terrified you. Some of you may think right now that you're just in the second category, that you're just torn up. I'm just broken. I'm dismayed. I'm disheartened. I don't, I don't know if I can trust him. I'm going to tell you what. If you are broken, then you're on the front porch of salvation. Because it says here, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart. If you're broken, he's here for you. And he's calling you just like the priest. Come on home. It's available for you now. So just like Levi, and according, according to your brokenness, in as much as your pride can be humbled, uh, you know, your heart just ripped out of your chest and you kill it. As much as you can die to yourself, in other words. God will give you life and peace. Go back up to verse 1. We're talking about the priests. And now, O priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not take it to heart, to give glory to my name, says the Lord of hosts, I will send a curse upon you. I'll curse your blessings. Yep, I have cursed them already because you do not take it to heart. So God's warning to the priests is pretty threatening because there's consequences coming for not doing their job. However, there's benevolence in this warning. This is a good warning. Check this out. Go to verse 4. Look at verse 4. Then you shall know that I have sent this commandment to you that my covenant with Levi may continue. He didn't pluck Levi out of eternity and tell everyone else to just deal with it. He's my guy. You have the opportunity to be right with God. The same relationship that I have with Levi, I want with you, priests, post-exilic Judah. I still want you. I didn't create you to die. My will is that you repent. My will is that you get right with me. My will is that you are in covenant with me, not out. Come on back. I want my covenant to continue. Now, in about 400 years, God's about to make a, a brand new covenant through His Son. He's going to change the game. And since you and I are under that covenant, the same call from God is extended to every one of you. Come be a part of this covenant so that, not Levi this time, come be a part of this covenant so that, not Judah, come be a part of this covenant so that the whole world... can have life and peace. I want it to continue with you. That's the covenant we have. Surely you will have life and peace. So he's called back the priest, but now he's about to call back the people. We're going to start in verse 10. And I'm about to read from the New International Version. I did New King James for the priesthood. I'm switching to New International Version, and here's the reason I'm doing it. NIV is more of a thought-for-thought thought translation than a, than a word-for-word word translation. So what you're going to get from this, it won't be as complex in its language. But what you will get 
is a relationship aspect. And I want you to figure out the relationship aspect to this passage. So that's why I'm reading NIV. Verse 10. Do we not all have one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. And another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands, and you ask why. Well, it's because the Lord is witness between you and your wife, and you have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. I want you to look at this thing when we talk about the relationship aspect of this. Judah is missing God. But I want you to know that God is missing Judah. Here's what I mean. When you sin, we talk about sin the definition literally means missing the mark, like an archer who's trying to hit the bullseye. The measure to which he misses the bullseye is sin. So when you shoot for God and you miss him, God is missing you. Did you catch that? As you miss God, he's missing you and he's saying, come back. And that's what we get here in, in, uh, in the second part of chapter 2. Just like the priests who have turned their backs on their duties, now Judah has turned its back on God. So in an allegorical sense, Judah has divorced God. In a literal sense, it's the men who have divorced their wives and are now taking new wives who do not worship God. They worship a foreign God. So just as a husband divorces his wife, so Judah has broken its covenant with God. Now, God really doesn't like divorce. He's not a big fan of it, if you haven't seen in Scripture. Divorce is a picture of a broken promise. We get the exterior of that. You can see a divorce. It's the exterior, the picture, a broken promise. Inside of that, the thing you cannot see is a broken person. And as we saw in Psalms, if you happen to be a divorcee tonight, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. Those of you who feel like you have been broken or stranded, you have been divorced, God is not far from you and He will not despise a broken and contrite heart. So even you, I want you to figure this out, that there is hope in chapter 2 that we see these men abandoning their cause and doing violence to their wives, it's going to say in a few verses later, there's hope there. Because God is not far from them. And he's saying, come back. I want my covenant to continue with you. But it's really no wonder that Judah's in trouble this way. People across time and across cultures, they get into this trap very easily. I want you to figure this out. If you can look at God, who is perfect, who is ever gracious, who has done you no wrong, who has planned for you, created you, sustained you, saved you, 
died for you, if you can turn your back on him, what in the world are you going to do to another person who is not perfect, who is going to do you wrong, who is going to aggravate you, who is not going to load the dishwasher, whatever. If you can turn your back on Almighty God, there is nothing stopping you from turning your back on a person. You have got to make up your mind and dance with the person who brought you. There's a term called common grace in theology. And here's what common grace is. Everyone, everyone, I'm not talking about saved people. Everyone has the chance to experience living God's way and experiencing the benefits of doing things God's way, even if they're not saved. In other words, you can be an awful, nasty person, unlovable, and someone still might love you. You can be a terrible person and you can still love someone and get the benefits of marriage. You do not have to be saved by God to love someone and have someone commit their lives to you. And in that bond of marriage, you can get all the benefits. The way God has designed marriage, it still will benefit people. That's why he planned it that way. And that's why people get so worked up about, well, how, what is marriage supposed to mean? God designed it to benefit both people. And so that's common grace. You have access to that. And it's more common than we realize, and it's way more gracious than we realize. And here's something else. If you take that, you're going to see how far Judah has fallen. There's that common grace. But look, Judah has a covenant with God, not just a covenant with their spouse. And so Judah takes that covenant with God, and they've turned their back on him. Now that for us now, that would be salvific grace. The grace that you are saved by, right? The grace that is afforded to you because Jesus lived a perfect life and took all your sin from you and nailed it to the cross. Now you're free. You have that grace, that salvific grace. You're saved. They turned away from that. But at least on the way down, there's common grace to catch your fall. You got that soft mattress. At least you're married. But they disregard that, and they're getting rid of their wives. So now's the fall. And after they got rid of common grace, you know, maybe you should restart that up. Well, yeah, let's get a new wife, except she worships a foreign god. So, limbo, how low can you go? Judah is in free fall. They're creating new and creative ways to disobey God. This is how great the fall is. So it's really tragic for God to look at Judah in this way. And this is why he uses strong language. You can go back up to verse 3 and you can look at the language he's using to them. He's getting very serious because what he's saying is, look, you are supposed to be with me and you're supposed to be taking care of each other. And you turned your back on me and you turned your back on each other. What, what worse can you do? Please come back. You need to get right with me and you need to do right by each other. Verse 15, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and in spirit. So they betrayed him with their bodies because they're marrying new people, but they betrayed him in spirit because those new people are worshiping a foreign God. And they're blaspheming him. So now they betrayed him in body and spirit. So what is he seeking from them in their marriage? It says, godly offspring. All right, well, fat chance of that happening. 
because this is the 5th century B.C., and it's not like women are advancing their careers in medicine and law practice. They're birthing kids. They're raising kids. And here's the deal. If the offspring of Judah is being raised, taught everything they know, being schooled, being taught how to worship everything by people who worship a foreign god, that means the entire future of Judah is in the hands of a foreign god, not our god. That's why he says this is pretty serious. Your entire future is going to be raised not to worship our God. So for single people, here's my soapbox. And you better figure out when you're going to marry someone where their allegiance lies. Because if you want to have kids, everything that's passing on from you and all the people that you will affect, who is raising them, who's teaching them, and where their allegiances lie. God says he wants godly offspring. So, single people, you may love someone. Someone may love you. Someone may be the most fertile person in the world and not produce any godly offspring. Someone might be the most infertile person in the world and produce a whole lot of godly offspring. Because what this text is saying, it's not about how good you can make babies. It's about how godly you can make your family. Somebody may produce great offspring. All A's making offspring. Hitting home runs and little league offspring. Old little kid getting into the Ivy League offspring. Starting businesses offspring. What does God want out of your marriage? Not the trophies. He wants you. And he wants your offspring, you to carry that covenant to your offspring so that you will have life and peace. So be on your guard, he says. And do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Verse 16, the man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Now here's a literary device for you. In English class, we're all taught, don't repeat the same word over and 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 over again because that is very, 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 very annoying, right? But in the ancient Near East, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. So verse 15 says, Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. And verse 16 says, Be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. So this is very important. Malachi is saying, you need to prepare yourself and you need to make up your mind to do this. You are prone to wander. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. In the same way, 
that you are called to work out your salvation. You should be working out your marriage. The other person may not deserve it. I'll be happy to take your side and say, you bet they don't deserve it, those rascals. You may deserve it. I'll, I'll take your side again. You deserve all the work in the world, but I guarantee you this. God deserves your best effort, and he has called you to take care of of his son or daughter, so you have to give your best effort in marriage because God has called you to do that, and that person is also being called by God so that they can have life and peace. And if you want your partner to have that, then you better give it to them. Be on your guard so that you do not be unfaithful. You have to dance with the one who brought you. Coach Royal made a decision that he's going to stick with the wishbone offense. These are my plays, my offense, my players. They want me a national championship. I'm going to do it again. I'm sticking with them. I don't care if bad things have happened. This isn't working out the way I want. It doesn't matter. I'm sticking with it. They brought me this far. I'm sticking with them. And it it really did work out. People adopted his, his offense and took it to their schools. There's some, some little coach called Barry Switzer. He took it. There's some coach, Bear, Paul, Build-A-Bear, Bryant, something like that. And I'll tell you what, Oklahoma and Alabama, they did pretty all right running that wishbone offense that they took from Coach Royal at Texas. 1965, he said, I just lost to, you know, a side dish. So we're going to continue. From 1968 to 1970, Texas won 30 straight football games, and they won two national championships. You can lose to a side dish, you can lose to house salad, and you can win it all, but you have got to stick. You have got to commit to the one who has brought you. And I'll give you two points and I'll finish. God has brought you out of sin. So stick with him. He wants the dance. And number two is this. There were plenty of nations better than Judah. And God still called back their priests. And I'll tell you that. There's plenty of people better than me. And there's plenty of people better than you. And God is still calling every single one of you to Him. He wants you. He wants you. He wants that covenant to continue. I'll leave you with this final quote. This is from Paul Washer. I have given God countless reasons not to love me. None of them changed His mind. You have given God countless reasons not to love you. And you will never, ever change his mind. He wants you. He wants the dance. Dance with him. The same covenant that was initiated at the Last Supper is available to you now. And he's saying exactly what he said in verse 4. Come here. 
so that my covenant may continue through you, so that you may have life and peace. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for how you have initiated this new covenant with us. And we are so thankful that we get to take part in it.